Hey, welcome. The Eternal Debate's back 2022 and it's all for you. Was that too enthusiastic? No, not at all. It's just your usual uh, wonderful self, isn't it? well, you know. Who are you? What's your name? Oh, yeah. Andrew Floyd. Sorry, I'm just sat filing my nails here on my swivel chair. (laughs) Um, Everybody knows me. Yeah, they actually do know, though, don't they? (laughs) Um, So, yes, so I'm Rachel of the Eternal Debate. And so today we are doing something that we've not done before. Um, We've got someone on with us, which I'm really excited about. Um, It means I don't have to talk so much. (laughs) I've Um, not planned anything. (laughs) I feel a fraud. (laughs) <laughs> you feel like a fraud. Uh, at least you're being your usual dramatic self. Though. I've just got a coffee you're, you're, and a banana. I'll just sit back and you know, <laughs> listen to you all carry on. You'll bring Speaking the energy. Speaking of carry on, who have we got coming on? Carry the mortician. Carry. Did you like Carrie. what I did there then? Carry. Carry. Carry the mortician. Yes. Yeah, so um, Carry is from She's the mortician Michigan. from Michigan. She's the mortician from Michigan. And uh, we did have a post out on our social channel. She's famous. Uh, last, last week. Yes. So um, 98,000 people know her. Well, I couldn't manage was. that at Christmas time. It was 98,000 when we first said that we were going to have a call with her, but she's up to 99 now. Yeah, we've done that. Just, just in the Power week. to the people. <laughs> Ted's going to get you there, Carrie. Ted's going to get you to 100,000. Like that. So, <laughs> without without further Just make sure ado, you give them all back afterwards. <laughs> without further ado, um let's begin. So welcome, Kari. Um it's so lovely to finally be speaking to you. I know um I was I was just having a look back and it was first uh November 2020 when I first spoke with you. Oh my gosh. I know, I know over Facebook Messenger. So it's it's um took us quite a long time uh to get to this point, I suppose. Um but how are you? How are you today? I am doing great. Thank you. I'm so excited for this. And I was like I was saying when we started just chatting, I'm so nostalgic for your accent and just, I love it. It's so fun. Oh, play, play, plenty of accents today. Accents abound. <laughs> um, so if we can launch straight in, I know, Carrie, you've got um, 99.2 thousand subscribers on your YouTube when I looked this morning, which is which is has gone up since we first did the uh, the, the post oh. last week. Um, you mean there's more popular people than us on social media? <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, so... What what inspired you, Carrie, to to start doing that first off? What? Before Carrie answers that question, yeah. sorry, can I just come in and just say, Carrie, I've prepared something for you. Oh, oh. Is it like a song or a? Are you ready? And I'm it's ready. on the on the back of how many YouTube followers you have. Okay. Nobody does it better. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it half as good as you. Carrie, you're the best. Okay. <laughs> you could have sent me and we could have done some harmonies and sent each other a little ebony and ivory, whatever. Are you suggesting my harmony was? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> oh my goodness no 
you. There you go, immortalised in song. Right. <laughs> I am so glad you pre-warned me that you was a uh, you were. I've you never were been serenaded, that. so that's I was nice. practicing that all while I was making a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, I'll let you answer the question now, Carrie. Okay. Well, it's a quick. Oh, why did I start this? So I had been a funeral director for a about like, oh, I don't even know how many years at that point, maybe 12 years or so. And I was in between funeral homes and trying to kind of find out, figure out what I was going to do. And my husband at the time said, why don't you just answer some questions for some friends on Facebook? So I did. And people wanted to share them, but I didn't want to open my Facebook. So they're like, put them on YouTube. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do any of that. And so now like 700 videos later and I mean, it's insane. People want to know so many things and in so many ways. Some people like the two-minute videos. Some people like more in-depth. Some like visual. Some like interview. And so I could cover the same essential, you know, one small topic in multiple ways for different people. And they're going to learn something different each time. It, it amazes me. And I thought I would, after like 20 videos, oh, I'll run out of content. Everybody will know what they want to know. And my lists just keep growing and growing and people just want to know more. And I'm like, wow, that's a really good question. I never would have thought of that. And so then I get to learn more while I teach them. So it's kind of this love, love relationship, I think, between me and viewers. And that keeps me doing more and doing more and doing more. I think it's a fantastic thing. And and really picking up on what you said about the the different formats the different timings mm -hmm. which appeal to different people and yeah. people can just pop it's like a little pick and mix isn't it you know they can just pop in get the information that they're that they're interested in and you know in, in a really manageable way i love it yeah well in the coffee with carrie i do a coffee with carrie segment it's usually between 30 to 50 minutes. And it's just me literally rapid fire answering questions people are throwing at me. And I have a lot of people tell me they just turn it on in the car, like a podcast almost. And they just listen because it's just me talking to the camera. So, you know, I can't imagine people sitting and looking at me for 50 minutes. Like that just <laughs> is so embarrassing to me that, that somebody would do that. But, um, you know, I guess when you're listening, you do watch people, but it is, it's still yeah. just, uh, I have, I, I have to look at Rachel for all the podcasts that we do. Fortunately, <laughs> not everybody else does. So. <laughs> My daughters would love her hair right now. It's so fun. It's Thank like a you. mermaid, mermaid <laughs> unicorn thing. It's um, It has faded quite a lot now, but yes. Yeah, I think but she's wearing quite a enjoyed. tail as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Carrie, just um, just with you saying, I know you said that you've been doing this 12 years. You was a funeral director in Barma for 12 years before you started your channel. So how, how long have you been in the profession? Um, I have been licensed in April of this year. It'll be 20 years and I've been in the business for 27 almost. So this year will be 27. So since I was 16, do the math. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for, for forever. I mean, I don't remember not being around this business in some capacity. And so I think that's why it's so second nature to me to be at a funeral home, to be talking about funeral stuff, to be kind of just immersed in the world of it. And, but I think that's also why I kind of was in a little bit of a rut, which I didn't realize during that time. 
And doing the platform on YouTube and social media really reinvigorated everything about the business to me and really got me excited in wanting to dive back in because it gets stale after a while and it does get heavy and all consuming. And I think we do need to mix it up once in a while, especially if you're in, well, as we say, middle America, I just really vanilla kind of where we are. We don't have many wild, wacky things happen. We're not very, you know, progressive. And so it can get a little stale. Yeah. I think having the YouTube channels as well and and things like in this year and in this day and age, social media is is huge, isn't it? And I think um, as much as it's a platform for, for people who are reputable, who have, um, you know, legitimate information and knowledge, there's also the, the flip side of that, isn't there, that there are people who um, can put out mistruths or so I think it's really good to have people who can balance that or I, I know when I know when we um roughly about this time last year we we became inundated with people who weren't in the profession so when we began our podcast initially we were aiming it at embalming students or qualified embalmers and it for it to be more um skill and technical based and and really we ended up going in a bit of a different direction but that was kind of led by what people were asking us or people who were coming to us so I think like you you like your coffee with Carrie then really feeds into that I, I presume and 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 answering those questions what's the are curious you know and that's, yeah you give them a platform but like you said there's platforms that people ask questions to people that don't really truly know answers and mm. It's almost like, okay, I want to scream louder now what I'm saying just to overshadow what they're saying because it's wrong. Mm. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add, it's, it's, it's frightening how quickly the mistruths can find them, themselves into the public perception, though, into the public um, forums. So. You know, um, wrong answers are going to be saucier than mm. the actual truth. And because some of these people who are putting them out are trying to create a platform for themselves just to have some notoriety. Mm. They're, they're not even a mortuary science student. They're like pre-mortuary science students. Like, Hey, I'm taking a chemistry class and I work for maybe a morgue or something. And so I think I know everything. So I'm going to start a channel and my name's going to have mortician in it. And so people are going to think I know what I'm talking about. And I'm going to break laws and I'm going to put out that information. And of course, if you talk about, you know, penises, vaginas, breasts, anything that's salacious, it's going to get traction quicker mm -hmm. than talking about just everyday stuff. And that's what some of them are going for. And it does, it catches ground. And it's sad because then people come back to me and go, oh my gosh, is this true? And I'm like, no, it's not. That's, that's false. But what I think, it's, yeah. it's even down to like the language and things, isn't it? In some yes. instances, like I, I would never refer to a deceased as a corpse. No. But I hear that, um, you know, out there in the public forum with people who have um, a, a, a large platform. Um, mm. So, it, yeah. So it's like you say, it's, it's those things that are it, shock value just gains you more right. and it doesn't necessarily um 
come along with the, the dignity and respect that, that our profession deserves. But if you look at like when I watch TV shows and things too, they're using those terms because they're spicier. And so mm -hmm. they're using corpse and cadaver, which a cadaver is only a medical science body. It's Agreed. Not, it <laughs> yeah. is not somebody that goes in for just an autopsy. But so that's misinformation just in that. But those are saucier terms, you know, saying, oh, someone's loved one is in on the prep table is not as fun as the, you know, the corpse is in on the slab or mm. you know, kind of thing. So they just jazz it up and people, I think, feed off of that. And that's how they start to talk. And it does, it catches more than, I guess, my boring jargon, <laughs> which is, you know, <laughs> the, the, the actual words. facts yeah. <laughs> spoken yeah. in a way that, that demonstrates dignity <laughs> and respect. <laughs> I don't want that. That's so, <laughs> <weird>. <laughs> so, um, so key topic wise, then, um, the, the difference between what your practices perhaps are over, over there in the U S in comparison to, to the UK. I know, um, I recently saw a post, um, on a Facebook group, um, aimed at embalmers with, you know, professionals and um, discussing how long uh it is until you're able to embalm a person in in this country in the uk um and there was quite a a, a shock um from some people so just especially for for our listeners who are predominantly uk based like so how how soon do you get to embalm a deceased Kari? Uh, like ours so i mean there are still more sometimes i mean it's not the the common always but they may come be in for preparation an hour after they've died which is always a little weird because you're they're so warm that you're like okay please when i make this incision don't let them scream or something you know because <laughs> it is so quick um that was one thing so i went it's now been three years ago i think pre-covid i came to england and worked alongside a funeral home over there for a couple of days and that was shocking to me that delay that you have to mm. encounter i've heard it's better now because covid they had to put push the change it a little bit to try to speed up because of the just influx of deceased but I think the embalmer that I spent a couple hours with, the lady had been dead for five weeks and she was embalming. And that was, she said, this is, you know, what we encounter three to five weeks is no big thing. I was surprised the condition of the lady was, was good though. Um, I mean, as good as you can, but better than here for five weeks, I feel like, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what are you encountering? Like, what is your traditional that you guys are encountering where you are? Because I've also been told that that's not traditional. So I think there's, I think yeah. there's um, vast regional differences, and it definitely depends on if the person's going to be buried, if they're going to be cremated, if a coroner's been involved and the person's gone gone for a post mortem. Um, so where I am at the moment in the in like so me and Andy are both northwest, but we're we're different areas of the northwest. Um, so for me at the moment, uh, five days is really, really, really good. Um, and that's usually people who um, have passed away 
at the home have come to us and then all the family have, have arranged to register the death um and and they're going to be buried like they've they've been my quicker ones which has been around five days um at the moment though i would say my average is between 10 days to two weeks but um and the two weeks to three weeks is more when when a coroner's involved and the person's passed away gone to the hospital had the post-mortem and then been brought to me um so that's that's roughly my average i'm not sure andy what yeah i was going to suggest seven to ten days um tends to be the average that we're experiencing um and just going back to what Carrie said about uh, the the disease that she experienced when she came over to to the uk um refrigeration mm. has to be a big part of things over yeah. here for for that interim time if you like from the post-mortem well the post-mortem interval before the embalming uh, from death through to the embalming itself so we're fortunate shall we say that most funeral homes have access to refrigeration which I'm not sure if that is the case routinely over in the United States um it's more common now than it used to be because of necessity, mm. um, just because the holds, because families are wanting to hold people longer or there's holds in between. Yeah. You know, yeah. And cremation and I, th yeah. I think one of the important things to, to note, though, is that um, you'd observe that the disease looked better than you might have anticipated they might after that length of time. But I think the key difference is how they are internally after that length of time um and the fact that when you do bring somebody out from refrigeration yes in that first maybe half an hour to an hour but leave it any longer and things will start to deteriorate quite rapidly right so, now is your refrigeration monitored in terms of temperature like are you regulated what temperatures you can keep somebody so it's not freezing because we can't get below 35 degrees here um, so we can't freeze somebody at the funeral home. Yeah. And of course, you'll, you'll be working in Fahrenheit and Celsius. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, that's fine. It's just for the purpose of the listeners. Um, yeah. But we, I mean, the, the refrigeration facilities at funeral homes here are generally like the same as the fridge okay. that you'd have at home, um, generally anywhere between, I'd say, four and, and eight degrees. Okay. Uh, Celsius. So, and you must forgive me, I, I'm not quick at doing a Fahrenheit conversion. So. Well, but we well, certainly don't freeze. We certainly don't freeze. Yeah, our our if 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 any of our deceased are going to be um, frozen, if we know that it's long term, it's usually the hospitals that provide provide that us with that facility as opposed to our funeral homes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like our morgues in our for our medical examiners, because Michigan, where I am, we have medical examiners. We don't have coroners, um, and there's a big difference. Uh, but they can freeze. They can do you know, they can deep freeze somebody, they can do whatever they want. They're not as, um, they don't have that regulation on that temperature that we do. But I was also surprised the embalmers there with the, uh, they didn't have a machine like we have. She had her own a hand pump and had to capture everything that came out. So the amount going in and coming out is not to the degree of what we would have here because of how she was doing it and i don't know what standard since i only encountered one embalmer in the whole country kind of thing you know it'd be like embalming with one embalmer here you only get such a little glimmer of what one person 
Um, and she kind of worked for some, she was like a subcontractor with another trade embalmer kind of thing. And so she was not making very much. I was quite surprised by how little she was making for a skilled labor, but I don't know how it's viewed there. If it's the same thing, cause you don't embalm as much there as we do, I think. Well, you see, this is one of the eternal debates. <laughs> <laughs> Um, concerning embalming practice here in the UK because uh, it's the big difference here I in my opinion is because you don't have uh, an embalmer is not necessarily a funeral director and a funeral director is right. not necessarily an embalmer occasionally you do get the ones that are both but it's not like in the United States where I think you very definitely have to uh, be a funeral director and then licensed as an embalmer in the same uh, in the same license. Would I be correct in saying that? So each state is a little different. Mm. I will say though, there's I don't know of a state that you can just be licensed as an embalmer. You're either a funeral director only, yeah, or you're a funeral director slash embalmer license. It, but it depends on the state. Michigan, it's one license. You're either all or none but some states are not. Colorado, you don't have to be licensed to do any of it, So, right. which still blows everybody's minds. But um, yeah, so it depends on the state. Yeah, because I think the, the biggest uh, frustration sometimes from within the embalming circles is that if the funeral director that's speaking to the family doesn't embalm, they can't confidently answer questions or talk about embalming in the right. context that an embalmer would. Right. And there seems to be this, well, there has historically been this situation where embalmers are behind closed doors and not public facing. Now, Rachel and I, of course, with the podcast, we're quite passionate about putting out there um, the thoughts of the embalmer and, you know, in, imparting that knowledge over to, you know, to anybody that has an interest to listen. But yeah. I, th I think that has a lot to do with the perceived um low uptake of embalming um because i would say there are more funeral directors out there that don't embalm than ones that do so of course that has a knock-on effect to the families that they're serving and looking after yeah because you don't understand you don't understand what has to go in or what that condition of the body is going to affect what plans you're making in the area that i was in in england they didn't view the body as much, or if they did, it was very limited. Like, Hey, I'm going to come over and spend an hour with mom. They would pull her out of the cooler, take her upstairs, come into the little bitty viewing room, spend an hour, then they would go put her back and they could do that. However, many times they wanted until the burial was scheduled, but there was no public mm -hmm. view of any kind. So they did a lot of what they called facials where they just had some cosmetics and, you know, just got the person ready. We would call maybe like an identification viewing mm -hmm. time, just very simple, get them ready, do some restoration. If, you know, they had had an autopsy or post-mortem, they would suture the head or, you know, things like that, but very simple care until the time of burial. And then they would go off and do the burial, but everybody wouldn't see them at the burial. So that was kind of what I encountered, but I know it's so different and different. It'd be like coming to Washington where you're going to be exposed to composting and, 
you know, very green burials and all sorts of things. And then coming to Michigan and you're like, wait a minute, this is not even the same. (laughs) It'd be like going to Northern England to Southern and, and vice versa. And, um, you know, even going over to like Ireland where they embalm Mm -hmm. a lot more because they have multi-day wakes in the home and they have to ensure the integrity of the deceased. It's just Mm -hmm. so different uh, what you can encounter everywhere. It's really amazing. It is, it is. But I think also with the longevity of the wait time here for a funeral, which can, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've already talked about how long it takes for us to have access to be able to look after and to prepare by embalming the deceased. But even from that point, there could be another week or almost two weeks before the final disposition takes place. So, you know, we we start with a complicate, what you would consider a complicated case. And then we've got to make sure that that case has the longevity up until the disposition time. So, you know, it makes it even more of a challenge in that respect. But that one of the other things that concerns me, it seems to be a general theme through this country, is what is a usual time to allocate to a deceased for an embalming? Now, in my mind, for a non-autopsied case, anything less than an hour and a half is you're really pushing it to be able to offer the full care to that individual. But, you know, we have situations where some embalmers are expected to carry the workout within a 45 minute, sometimes less window. Yeah. Yeah. And and it it can happen if you get, I can't imagine that happening with the bodies that you are encountering. If they are warm and they have that blood has not clotted up because we are within like a two, three hour time after death. They've never been refrigerated. We can get a one point injection, which means opening one carotid one or one vein, one artery. But if they've been deceased for weeks and they've been in a cooler and they've been, I mean, you're, you're raising multiple vessels to get good distribution. You're it's going to take time. So like we, I could embalm if I was really familiar with the room and the deceased was, you know, just that right. You could embalm in like 40 minutes to an hour. If you're, you know, hustling right through and multitasking and cleaning while you're doing and, you know, but that's, that's pushing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate what you say because my formative background, I, also went through mortuary school in Canada. So I was fortunate to experience embalming in Toronto, um, which very similar to, you know, to you guys in the turnaround time and the access to the deceased. So when you talk about embalming warm in inverted commas, you know, I, I do fully get that. And, you know, you're like, what's warm body? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, the drainage phenomenal. People just couldn't appreciate it here. That's that's the thing. I know. Um, but yeah, it's it's there's a lot of challenges in this country. But it's not to say that you guys aren't without your own challenges. But I think that right. time is is probably the biggest factor between you know between us. Um, but yeah, we just we just needed your uh, <laughs> <laughs> your take on it and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Your assurance that for for deceased in, you know, that we receive, they need more than 40 minutes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Unless it's just a simple 
embalming. I mean, because what I kind of encountered when you're using that hand pump and you're having to collect everything and the aspirating, you can only do so much. The machine was not very great to aspirate and stuff. And so I can only, it was more of just a, let's just do a little something. It, it, it wasn't as yeah. in depth as we would be here with the machines and with the things we would have, you know, on site. Yeah. And I, th- I think a lot of that as well is just down to the fact that, you know, there are certain um, embalmers that carry out that trade work where they're moving from one place to another. So the, the equipment they choose to have is equipment that's more mobile um, and easy to pack up and take right. away. Um, I think right. Rachel probably agree. It's fair to say that mo- a lot of funeral premises do have, you know, the good spec equipment. Um, so don't, don't, don't let that be reflective of, you know, the, the way we approach embalming equipment wise nationally, we do have the good, the good machines it, i suppose that's something again though isn't it again it varies i know for because you haven't you have an actual embalming machine whereas i only have i only have a twin pump so the the amount of pressure that i can achieve um is is a world apart from what what andy can achieve um so so yeah the yeah it, it does depend on mm. on you on your setup and what you have access to definitely like to me, it's so archaic, you know, mm. truly to when there's so much at the disposal of an embalmer to have to be using, it's like using a gravity, you know, a gravity <laughs> bottle that you're just waiting for to see how much will go in and how much will come out. Because especially after that time period, yeah. you need to get deep in there to get out the clots and to get everything out and to get as much pressure pushing that fluid into the the tissue and you're just not going to get that as deep as you really should with a hand pump and stuff. So it seems so, I mean, like England, so, you know, very old school and, you know, classic old ways to me is how I felt like the whole country was. It was so, Uh, (laughs) well, you know, (laughs) except for the hand pump. I loved everything else. I would, I would go crazy using that, but you know, if that's what you Um, always use and that's your tradition, you know, that's, what you have so i would you know it wouldn't make a difference i think when you are used to one way and you look at the other it's like wow that would be so challenging but But i i would go as far as to say is that association with the older hand pump type equipment actually stems from when we used to embalm in people's own homes here right country Um, and that was always associated as being the equipment of the embalmer which i think unfortunately is stuck so a lot of people, even though we've progressed now to more funeral home related activities from keeping yeah. things in the family home, the equipment in some people's minds has always stayed the same. And I think that in a way is a generational thing because those that had to use it when they were young, meaning the older generation now, maybe then teach the next generation coming up about using what they used, but they've got an ignorance for what is on the market now. <laughs> Um, the unfortunate thing about this country is that, and it's still the case, you don't have to be licensed in any way. And I think you referred Colorado as being a state where that's similar. Um, but you don't have to be, anybody can be shown to embalm, which is quite a frightening 
you know, prospect really. Uh, but then you're only ever as good as the person that's shown you. Right. And if they've never been taught comprehensively, which they wouldn't have done, um, you know, what what hope is there for the future without regulation? That's that's my right. that concern. was I think that was one thing going over there was some of the regulation that was lacking with that we have now, just like even the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission, which I think that's not that same commission, but something is working to be put in place, I think, over in England to regulate that. Like, so here it dictates that a funeral home has to present a general price list in a specific format to every person who asks for pricing. You can't ask for a name. You can't ask, you can't say, I will give it to you only if you, you have to just present it to anybody. It can be your competitor. It can be anybody. You just have to turn over a price list and that pricing all has to be spelled out in a certain way where that was not the case over there. There wasn't anyone really regulating. And so you could, as a funeral home say, oh, the funeral home down the road gave you this price. Here's my price. Like, I don't have to spell it from a general price list. I don't have to adhere to certain regulations. And that was why that started here was to counteract some of that kind of combativeness yeah. between funeral homes and undermining and, and things. But I was surprised by some of that lack, just that one as an example that was not in place over there. But yeah, and, and that's th throughout the funeral profession in, <laughs> yeah. in, in this country. But as of September last year, the Competitions and Marketing Authority, the CMA, have enforced that all funeral homes must display a price structure you know, in their windows. So it is changing. Yeah, that's changing what I had slowly. read something last year about that. And I was like, oh, yay, because it was that seemed yeah. like a train wreck mm -hmm. to me for where we are in, I think, just in as society in terms of, you know, pricing and lawsuits and all that kind of stuff, like you just really do have to have some of that regulated to function well and to be an upstanding business and things. But so I think now is quite a nice time for us just to take a little break. Okay. Um, and then when we come back, um, we've had quite a lot of listener uh, questions that have been uh, submitted to us. So um, if you don't mind, we will be picking your brain. <laughs> um, so we will be back in a moment. Did you know you can find The Eternal Debate on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter? Be sure to follow us to keep up to date with future episodes or even suggest future topics. And share us with people who you think might enjoy our content. So welcome back. So we're still with Kari, the mortician. We're um, back. She's here, the mortician from <laughs> Michigan. I like how you say my name, Kari. Kari. <laughs> I only started saying it like that because Rachel did. I just I like it. That's the way it was. Is it Carrie officially? Well, Carrie. 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 In Michigan, we're really nasally and we talk funny, I guess. So, yeah, it's just Carrie. But well, when, when we. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> I know when we first um, when we first spoke over Facebook Messenger in in November 2000, uh, 2020 and you'd sent me those videos 
and um and uh, the first time I watched them through like half the information went in but half of it didn't just because I was like oh my god her accent (laughs) (laughs) I don't even realize I have an I mean compared to you obviously our country accents but I didn't realize within America there's so many accents and that people consider that I have an accent it's the nasally you you know upper United States kind of we call it a youper accent where like North Dakota and up in Michigan we get this funny little thing going on talking a little Canadian maybe you know kind of thing to it but yeah see when you consider how big America is like I suppose the different accents vary and make sense but the UK is so 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 small isn't it but yet our accents massively accented yeah and and you only have to go just down the road like um where I am I'm on a border of Lancashire and Yorkshire and I could literally drive for like five minutes and then people talk completely different to me so it's it's just yeah like our our accents over here like there's they're just so varied I love I love the um the the northeast accent the the geordie accent um and the scottish accent i love the scottish mm. accent i think we really the, northern ones but there are many accents just within scotland well yeah this oh, is true crazy. well that's there was a youtube video i watched i don't remember if it was before i came over to england or F, and it was like the nine accents of the uk or something and they went through and the one person like went and i was like oh my Gosh, I never even realized how many there were. Like it was crazy. Some I could not understand at all. But I think it'd be like coming to America and listening to some people talk. It's just really almost like lazy. T- you know, it's it's so muddled together that it's hard to hear the enunciations of anything. So it makes it hard to understand the person. But all right, let's talk in Bali. Let's right. let's do it. So. <laughs> Uh, so the, the first question then we have is from Dave Andrew on Facebook, um, which is, so has the process of alkaline hydrolysis been rolled out across the whole of the USA now? And roughly what percentage of funerals are using this instead of burial or cremation? And what do you consider are its biggest positives and negatives? Thank you. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> you don't have this over there yet, do you? Not to my knowledge. Right, yes. uh, it, does, it does exist. Um, I believe there is a um, place in Oxford oh, right. that offers it. Um, it's just not financially viable at the moment as a competitor oh. to, to cremation. Okay. Um, because there aren't many places that offer it. Therefore, those that people that do use it, there is a premium on the on the use of it. So oh. it's certainly not mainstream. Certainly not mainstream. Okay. Well, yeah. So here there are, I'm going to just pull up to read about, but there's 19 states it's legal in, but some of them it's just within like universities. It's, but this process has been around for forever. I won't say forever, but for many, many years, because this is how um, medical schools and like the Mayo Clinic, I don't know if you're familiar with that, have used this process for 15, 20 years for disposing of tissue samples and things because it's such a um, sanitary process. Mm. And so if there is any kind of contagions or anything, this kills all of that. 
And so it's been around for a long time. Michigan, it is not legal yet, but you can cross over state lines depending on the state laws. So like if I die here, I can be transported down to Indiana where it's legal and go get, you know, an alkaline hydrolysis cremation down there. Um, So it's not, I'm sorry, not Indiana, Illinois, um, where it's legal. So I can be transported to someplace where it's legal and have the process done there. It's, it is not um, super popular by any means, just because so many states don't have exposure to it. And even if it's legal in a state, there's not a lot of facilities that have one of these machines, just like a flame cremation machine, it's expensive. So you have to do enough business to make it worth it, to make enough revenue. Um, But, and it's a huge controversy between funeral directors here that it's called cremation. But a lot of the laws for the state, when they're writing it, they have to call it that within the state legislature, because it just means breaking down a body from one form to the cremated remains, which means cremation, even though cremation by definition means fire, mm-hmm. or, you know, that fire is involved. So there's people like that get so stirred up within the business about this because they're like, it's not cremation. <laughs> but, there, you know, it's the easiest way to identify it as water cremation to a consumer. Mm. And mm. it might be lazy, but if legislation is forcing us to call it that, then just embrace it and go with it and let it be water cremation. But I think it's the coolest process. It makes the most sense. There is such a small footprint environmentally where cremate fire cremation and burial take up about the same amount of environmental footprint. Mm. Cremation is not any more green than burial because you're using a lot of natural resource still where water cremation, you can use the off put to fertilize. There's places that, you know, like forestry services that can take that off put um, that comes off the liquid after Mm. and go fertilize with it. You can, you know, fully recycle every part of it and it's completely sanitary where you can't do that with the other. So Mm. I love it. It's a great process. Really, then I suppose the negatives just fall into the fact that it's not necessarily an option everywhere and and the cost and the cost of it then. Correct. I must admit, I do think it's, when I I first heard about it a, a, a couple of years ago, I I was I was quite excited about it and and I thought it was nice because you still have like you you know your ashes um that yeah. that you that you get for the family or whatever and I I did but then it just seemed to I heard a lot about it here and then I didn't hear anything about it, it kind of just all kind of like just went away so yeah so it's interesting I didn't realize that that there was a place down in Oxford yeah the the, the premise of it I think with more than just Oxford now but the premise of it is interesting because mm. it's been for the longest time in this country illegal to reduce a human body by acid means mm-hmm. but of course when you understand the pH scale this hydrolysis is just the other end of the same mm-hmm. scale yet there was never a law to say it was illegal by alkaline means so it would be interesting as to whether we would actually have to have it stated as being legal mm. because it's just not illegal. Mm. And that's how cremation started in this country. The loophole. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the loophole. Absolutely. Yeah. 
that that's how cremation became acceptable in this country that's the fact crazy. that it wasn't yeah. it just wasn't illegal <laughs> cremation wasn't put into statute law until 1902 wow but it it happened for a long time before that <laughs> i think trying to think like you said what are some of the drawbacks on the alkaline hydrolysis so i'm like saying thinking size is going to be one of the biggest as we're encountering you know deceased are larger and larger and larger for yeah. us to be cremating um 300 to 400 pound people is not uncommon Mm. And the capacity for those machines is much less than a flame retort where those can go up to a thousand pound person, you know, quite large, where these are going to be about 400 pounds, you know, mm. give or take some max. People often say too that, oh, you're boiling the body, but the machine actually shuts off if you get near boiling temperature. It's not boiling. It's just warmed water with the alkalines, the lye type materials, mm. that's just generating and circulating and breaking down the body. Reducing. So, yeah. Reducing. It's so fascinating. It is really a fascinating process. I think it's just mm. amazing. And the cremated remains after, I say cremated remains, but we mm. have to still use the word cremation. Yeah. Um, but it's a, a certainly a more chalky substance, mm. a more... They're much pleasant, lighter. Because, pleasant looking if... Yeah, if, you have to dry them out ashes. because mm. they're so, um, I guess, not waterlogged, but they're very pliable when they come out. So some places use like almost like a little oven, like a little... Um, convection oven thing that they will kind of drive them at a very low temperature. Some will just lay them out and let them dry for a couple of days. Everybody's got different processes that they're going through just because it's, it's not mainstream. And some of these places are so quiet about how they do things because there's mm. so few places doing it. And they're like, well, I don't want people to know what I'm doing. Mm. And I'm so secretive. And it's like, come on, you know, it's, 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 doesn't matter how you know you're not doing something that's you know earth shattering yeah, there. Yeah. let somebody else know what you're doing and maybe they'll tell you a process that they're doing that makes your world better but people get crazy a, a question a question i'd like to add just just linking into this question that we've been answering um because we've been talking you know it, within this answer a few times about the word cremation mm -hmm. um certainly when i was in toronto over in canada um as an embalmer the biggest thing for me to get my head around was this almost if if it, if you choose to have cremation as the final disposition um embalming can't be done it's, I don't know, does that relate over to where you are in the States? Is there this perception that if you choose cremation, you don't opt for embalming? I think that, so there's two big misconceptions, and these are questions I get asked a lot on my channel, especially, mm. do I have to be embalmed to be cremated? Is that a requirement? Because people don't really know the laws around embalming, which is one big thing I talk about. But it's misconception of the the direct cremation being mm. the disposition choice. Yes. And so when I sit down with a family to talk, you know, through what, what they want to plan, if they don't know specifically walking in, I say, we're going to work backwards. We're either cremating at the end or we're burying their casket and body at the end. And mm. we walk back. 
So you can either go directly to the cremation or we can have a viewing, we can have a funeral, we can have everything leading up to the cremation, but that's the final where people come in and think they can only have a direct cremation or a full body burial casket thing. They don't realize that you can do all this middle ground. Mm. Some of that I think is the funeral director because we really get sometimes annoyed, I guess is the better term because we hear cremation, some funeral directors, and they think direct cremation rather than going through the options with the family where they could have a full viewing with embalming, a traditional service and cremate at the end rather than bury. But some funeral directors just pigeonhole the family and don't go through options because they're all like, oh, cremation means I'm making this money. So I'm just going to not even do it. And they shortchange themselves. And that's where the narrative really has to change with the funeral director because our business models have to change with all of that. Just because cremation is rising, we have to change and see where that service could alter what we usually do with a family. And so it is, and a lot of, some of it is really just ego and pride and, you know, all those great yeah. sins within humanity, mm. but we really do get kind of. Yeah. I mean, here in the UK, because like we're that. such a, a small Island right. um, with uh, a very densely populated, <laughs> dense population, mm-hmm. um, the cremation rate is around 75 to yeah, 80%. Yeah, it's very high over there. It is. It is. So that's never really been an issue to us because, you know, the embalming has always gone hand in hand with cremation as being the most popular disposition. But when I was an intern at the funeral home in Toronto, um, used to answer the phones in the night I was residential and stayed at the funeral home Uh, and we had to ask embalming permission on the first call um, Mm -hmm. which again is something very different we we, there'd be a lot of people here that would raise an eyebrow to that Mm -hmm. saying you know why why would you ask those questions so soon but of course with what you'd said earlier the practicality is they could be prepared and ready to be embalmed that next morning so you very definitely had to ask it but when the disposition was cremation and I was asking the question it was almost as if the families were challenging me back saying why are you asking this when it's a cremation so it was obviously their perception um but I used to say you know you've you've as much right to see them in the best way possible be it burial or cremation so but it surprised me how surprised they were to be told that so yeah yeah. I know I think it's a good question and it is it's surprising and but that flip side of how many people think you are just embalmed regardless Mm. or how many people get autopsy people think that everybody gets an autopsy Mm. like I have so many people and I'm like no first of all I don't take any organs out second of all hardly you know it's a small percentage of people that have autopsies it's not done for everybody. And, you know, just the misconceptions that are out there, I think some days really do surprise me because I just, that's not my mentality. And that's not, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't have that lack of information about the business. So I just, I know that. And so it's interesting to me that somebody's walking around believing those things. Mm -hmm. Where did they get those thoughts? And I'm glad they're asking the question and can be righted in how they understand the business but it's yeah it's all over the place I think I think it's something that I didn't realize until we started doing this podcast and then being on social media and I had like and just constantly being exposed to the 
what people genuinely believe and and the and the things that they fear because they think it's true and and right. and until I started seeing that through doing this, I, and it was really eye-opening and just like what you were just saying, then like in some cases, like it's because you know different and you know the profession, mm -hmm. it's it really can be quite shocking that that people have these perceptions, but unless it's challenged or and unless we put out into the same platforms, uh, the you know, the the flip side of that, it's, it's it, I suppose it can just remain there unchallenged, can't it? I, th I think... Yeah, I think sometimes as well, it's almost like a word association, isn't it? With mm. You know, if I was to throw a word at you, you could probably give me about three or four things back associated with that word. Well, if you say death to people, then autopsy, formaldehyde, things like that are all the words that they straight away can think of that are associated yeah. with it. So, you know, there's, there's no kind of blame for the public thinking no, no. in that way. but it is important that, you know, mediums like this are available for them to, you know, to get a different right. side to it. Well, that's, I feel like our platforms educate on a small scale. And as long as we can correct maybe the thinking of a few people, because yeah. just like last week, I think it was NBC News, I like kind of called out on my Instagram. I'm like, seriously, in one photo of President Biden, they say, he's walking at a memorial service past the coffin and it's there's obviously a casket there and that makes it not a memorial service so in one headline they use two words that are incorrect and that is how it perpetuates you know when you can't fight a medium that large except you know one person mm. at a time and trying to educate and trying to use correct terms but just yesterday a funeral doctor was talking about coffins and I'm like oh my gosh you're driving me nuts because you <laughs> clearly did not sell coffins last week here in Michigan it's funny because that's that's a really big difference isn't it because for, for us yeah. coffins yeah. are our 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 norm yeah. and the the casket is like I always get really excited when when someone's going in a casket because I just think I just think they're so glorious and um <laughs> but yes yeah yeah so just that again it, it's something relatively small but I've, I've, yeah it's it's not an interchangeable mm. word is it but no they're two very different items they're two different it'd be like a couch and a chair mm. yes you sit on both of them yes you could buy both for your living room but they are very clearly different things and different shapes. It's just, yeah, it just, it drives me nuts. And I try not to let it because, <laughs> you know, like people do what they do. I'll have families. Sometimes they go, okay, let's go look at coffins. <laughs> we're going to look at caskets. And I'm like, man, I probably just made them feel like an ignorant fool, but I, <laughs> I don't try to do that. But sometimes I just, you can't stop yourself from saying something and then uh yeah it's hard it's really hard so, so many questions can come up aren't there i oh mean it's the, the size i mean people are surprised that here in the uk we still individually tailor the coffins to the size yes. of, of the person which i think is lovely you know it's oh. but it's very much a one size fits all unless it's oversized isn't it correct in, yes in the united states you, can't, you know if a person canada as well small you know if you have a cute little old lady that's like 410 and she's you know 72 pounds we can't make the casket smaller mm. unless we got a child's casket but then it's almost too small 
Um, so, you know, you could have a 300 pound person and a 72 pound person in the same exact casket because that's just what it is. Mm. yeah so yeah I, I even even i hadn't considered i suppose that aspect of it because yeah because we do just people we bring people into our care we measure them and then the coffin is is as per what the measurements dictate that they require so yeah it's it's brilliant just having this chat isn't it and just just for yeah. what i'm getting out of it as well it's just so enjoyable um so we'll move on to uh the next question no no i say question but um she has submitted quite a few uh, so this is um claire howarth on facebook so the first question is what's your go-to incision site for embalming a straight case and why the the carotid and the jugular up in the neck it's just kind of the standard i actually learned with the axillary i embalmed with a very old school um, older gentleman, and he always used the axillary. So that was kind of the beginning of me learning. So I can raise an axillary fast, which a lot of mm. people have never even raised one. Um, I've also embalmed with some people who really like the femoral. I don't, I don't like that as much, but some people love it. So everybody's kind of got their own thing, but I am pretty straightforward with a traditional yeah yeah and um, so her second question is having the experience and a career spanning almost three decades what has been the most significant and innovative piece of technology or equipment or chemical um that's revolutionized the funeral profession in your in your mind i was just made to feel very old without <laughs> trying to do that three decades oh my gosh that's I'm, I'm with you Carrie I'm with you <laughs> you're not alone <laughs> I'm kind of dumbfounded <laughs> thinking about it like that wow um you know I think it's not even on the embalming side things when it comes to preparation of the deceased they change at a snail pace within our business just like the um alkaline hydrolysis trying to get put into play everywhere. It takes forever. Anything changing takes forever. Those little things obviously are the big things that have changed. You know, people going to a little bit more natural burials and alkaline hydrolysis, but just on the smaller scale, the technology within the funeral side of things, going from typewriters, which mm. still have typewriters around funeral homes for some things, but not, you don't use them much, you know, death certificates are all on the computer and we send them electronically everywhere now, which is great where you used to have someone physically take a death certificate, sit at the doctor's office, wait for a signature, bring it back. Then you'd have to type the information on it. And so just going from that to the computer going, you know, videos and printed material and what you can do with all that, the websites, that has been such a huge change within mm. the business is adding in that component of trying to coordinate pictures for videos and getting all that stuff and emails. And the fact that I now text with families I'm working with, because as soon as I call them from my phone after hours, they have my number and then they're calling or they're texting me. And I'm like, you know, it's easy access where when I started, we had pagers. Mm. And I would, you know, we would sit at the funeral home till nine o'clock at night and I would answer the phones. So the funeral director could go do whatever he wanted to do or she wanted to do until nine o'clock. If I needed them, I paged them. 
and they would find a phone and then call me back. And then after nine, they were home for the evening. And then their, their significant other or family member would answer the phone if they got called out. So that part of it has changed so much is the cell phones and how that changes our interactions with families and things and um, ease of access, which was not always there because people expect things. Lickety yes. split. Yeah. That, that's where, the flip side, isn't it? Where it used to be, oh, you know, way back in the day before even pagers, well, nobody's answering over at the funeral home. We'll call them in an hour or two and then they can come. You know, it was you didn't get somebody every time you called right away because they might be at the grocery store or they might be mm. at dinner or they might be running an errand. So then you just call back later. You call back later where now if someone is not immediately there in an instant at your disposal, the families are almost annoyed sometimes. Mm. And so it's just a very different change of pace than that. Those things I would say are bigger than anything in the embalming or care of the body. Cause that's all really a lot the same from what it used to be even 50 years ago. It doesn't change that much truly. I'm smiling, listening to you say, recalling some of those yeah. <laughs> older practices, because I certainly remember the page. But I also remember when I started in funeral services in 1994. Mm -hmm. um, That's when I started. That's is it? Yeah, yeah it's it. it mobile phones were not commonplace we no. we had to pull the funeral vehicles up and use call boxes phone boxes <laughs> to ring the funeral home and when i think back to that that's what makes me realize i'm well i know i don't look it but you know old now <laughs> <laughs> we're super young we're just starting these. as long as we keep our looks carrie that's all that <laughs> right, that's right it's a little bit of embalming exposure you know so the third question from claire then um what's your favorite mortuary prep based instrument what you use regularly and why well you have to use so many instruments mm. throughout the process i don't know that i have a favorite instrument i really like my aneurysm hook that's uh wavy oh yeah you know some people really that's one area where i find people have a favorite because mm. there's several different styles they have the ones that are blunt at the tip of the hook um some that are pointed so you can kind of move through the tissue and then some have a straight handle some have a wave, wavy handle i really like the wavy one with a little bit sharper tip to the hook i don't know i wouldn't say i have a favorite instrument though i just you use what you've got to use. And when you trade and balm, if you go to different places, you use what's there. Like I don't, mm -hmm. I don't trade and balm enough where I have any of my own stuff. Really. I bring my respirator, my shoes, um, gloves, goggles, you know, I bring my, my PPE that I kind of want to use, but I don't bring fluid and instruments really with me. Cause I'll just use what's there. And sometimes a new place you encounter where you don't have some things and you have to kind of MacGyver your way. Do you guys know MacGyver? I don't know. From the Simpsons. Oh, no. <laughs> so MacGyver where you duct tape for everything. But um, yeah, you kind of make it up and, and figure your way along or, or whatever. But yeah, I wouldn't say I have a favorite instrument. Okay. Here's a question though. Yeah. Why is, why is an aneurysm hook called an aneurysm hook? I don't know. It's just 
It's no, <laughs> I don't know anybody that can answer that question. <laughs> ah. Even people in surgery don't tend to recognize that as anything to do with <laughs> So Wikipedia says an aneurysm is an outward bulging balloon. So the, you're hooking around the vessel of it. And so I think in surgery, you're just using that to hook the, the blood vessel where it's bulging. Where the bulge is. And I mean, we use it for obviously hooking any vessel, Mm. not just one that's bulging. But Mm. so I think, um, yeah, that's what it is. It's just strange that it seems to be the one instrument that's synonymous with the embalmer. Mm. I I think so. You know, if you showed or the trocar, that or the Mm. trocar are really, because the trocar, you don't there there's not another platform that you really use a trocar in the capacity that we do where surgeons would use an aneurysm hook type thing in surgery but we use trocars and nobody else really does Does, i don't think unless like a plastic surgeon of some would use something like that for liposuction or something i I was just going to suggest that's probably the closest that we could yeah but i don't even know that for sure okay yeah Mm. What's um, that, so, <laughs> so next um and i suppose this kind of feeds into conversations that we've already been having um but in your opinion what is the biggest misconception that the general public have about the funeral or death care profession as a whole Ooh, as a whole that we're shysty or that we're we're thieves and we're we have mm. you know ill intentions because i think that's the one big generalized statement I get the most posted on some of my YouTube is these people are criminals. These people just want to screw you over. These Mm. people want your money. They just are this. And those kind of broad statements are, I think some of them are hurtful because they're encompassing me and that. And I'm like, but I'm not. And it's funny because if I engage in some conversation with those people and I'm like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, that's not my intention. They'll be like, oh, I don't feel that about you. That's why I watch your channel. I just think that about this person or that person or whatever. So it's interesting that people use such broad terms, but they really are only talking about one or two people. But I think that is truly one of the biggest is that we're thieves either when we close the casket, we kick everybody out, which I don't Mm. do. It's what happens behind the scenes. Like we've talked about, you know, people wonder what's behind the scenes because they don't see it. And that's when they're worrying that we're doing bad things. We're harming their loved one. We're stealing things. We're taking off the jewelry when we're closing the casket. Mm. And that's why we kick everybody out or, you know, things like that, I think are, is probably the biggest. Yeah. Yeah. And that we're super yeah. rich and just rolling in dough all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those wedding planners never get the same stigma. Oh my god! <laughs> like the the uh, this is nothing against wedding planners, but you don't legally need a wedding planner for any of it. But yet, people hire them because they want them. Yeah, and, and that's the big difference. Question isn't it? how much they spend with them. Yeah. However, the person who's taking care of your loved one after they die, God forbid that they should get paid for doing a job taking care of your mm. life. Like, oh my gosh, blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Not a knock against wedding planners, but 
I, I still don't understand. Like we plan funerals in like three days. So like if a person dies three days later, we're burying them here, you know, like. Honestly. They have to look through every year, a year and a half. What do you do for that much time? <laughs> I coordinate a pastor, a florist, clothing, a casket, all the vehicles, the part-time staff, the obituary in the paper, the folders, the video in three days. And we have an event what the heck do you do for two years or a year and a half or even six months of planning? I don't understand. Change your mind, I think, is the answer. (laughs) (laughs) We don't give them time to do that. Oh my gosh, that's funny. It's it's funny on the on the back of that when when me and my husband were getting married um nearly nine years ago, um, when I was going to like the events and like looking at the cars or, or whatever or flowers, and I kept referring to it as my funeral and purely because these are all the things that yeah. I would usually be so I, you know if I was looking at flowers it would be you know funeral flowers or, or, or whatever and I just kept saying it and people would look at me like horrified and I'd be like oh no <laughs> it's not it's my wedding You're like I it's am looking same. forward to this I promise you <laughs> yeah. that's great <laughs> um so the last the last question then from Claire um as embalming, more often than not, can be a solitary task whereby your workload is solely dependent on your efficiency, ability to multitask, prioritize, and of course, the condition of the disease presented to you. Do you ever take note or find pleasure in what is referred to by her as a mini win? Um, so by this, she means, uh, so, so I, I can give you an example. Um, so sometimes I'll be, to, I'll be told that my deceased that's arriving for embalming um, has had a, a post-mortem. So I'm, I'm anticipating somebody who's, who's had that. But then when I remove from, uh, from refrigeration, the, they've not had the examination as, as I was told. So that for me would be a mini win because now I've got a straight case presented to me in, instead of, instead of post-mortem. So um, do, do you, uh, have any mini wins during your day-to-day? Mini wins. I think her question was the one that she had a word in it. And I was like, oh, what the heck is she asking here? There was, um, I'm going to have to read hers too. I guess my my equivalent of that would be just keeping on the autopsy theme when they haven't had a cranial investigation. Yeah. Um, and that's my little mini win. You, you just think, oh. <laughs> I mean, I will take. I will take. <laughs> I will take that one if um, if if they've, if they've got to have had something. I, I will take mm. that one definitely. Or a tissue donor. I don't know how often people are mm. tissue donors over there. Um, I mean, when they're here, we get basically it would be easier. And this may be a little graphic, but if we just got hands and a head, and then we were able to put them on like some sticks, because what we're left with is just never going to not leak like Mm -hmm. tissue in weird places and you know it's just a a logistical Mm -hmm. mess so if we hear tissue donor we're like oh my gosh this is just gonna be a wreck and so so then when you get them and maybe they've only given their eyes or something that's a little bit of a mini win I guess in the prep world sometimes um when you go in and you're like if you're doing arrangements and they say it's just going to be a direct cremation and you know it ahead. That's kind of sometimes a mini win because some days you just don't feel like doing it. You know, (laughs) like it takes a lot of energy to sit and lead a group for two hours to make funeral arrangements, especially if you get like six to eight people and they're all talking and you're having to go through everything. It is 
sometimes not sometimes it's exhausting to do that especially with a big group and so sometimes when you hear oh it's just a direct cremation it's gonna you know it's just one person or two people coming in you're like oh thank jeepers because it's takes so much less of you in your day and sometimes you just don't have it like i just came back from having covid and stuff into work and these are exhausting me some of these arrangements just because you're talking for two hours and you're kind of on you know you have to i can't sit and act the way i'm feeling (laughs) or like when i went through a divorce a year ago i can't sit and act how i'm feeling i have to be present and give all this energy so it's like oh my goodness i don't think i can do do this today and then when you hear it's a direct cremation and you know it's going to be like a 20 30 minute it's like, oh, yes, <laughs> I can do this for 20, 30 minutes. Whereas two hours, three hours, four yeah. hours, sometimes that's a. Yeah, that's a good one. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think it's refreshing as well to to hear someone talk about it in a way that's just honest to that. Sometimes you do have your own feelings and you are pop, putting them to the side to to be present and be there for somebody else and that. As, as much as you do that wholeheartedly and, and that's your profession and it's something you care about, actually we are human as well. Yeah. And it's actually okay sometimes to feel a bit like that. So I think it's really refreshing. Um, but we know as, as, as funeral professionals, we're unconditional, aren't we? So we yeah. have to, you know, we have to put ourselves to one side in order to be mm. everything to everyone at um, all times i'm just sitting here 24 hours a day waiting for a phone call at 11 30 at night for somebody to check on their pre-arrangement for somebody mm-hmm. that's not even ailing you know that's what <laughs> i'm doing that's the mentality of a lot of people yeah. and it surprises me but we're not we're not sitting there just waiting for these random phone calls at really odd hours of the day about mm. things that are not imminent and urgent and and stuff but people think we are and so it's hard to not be like why are you calling me <laughs> i am here to serve you how can i assist you right now is how you have to be and it is it's hard and it's not that i don't want to help that person it's not that person's fault they caught me at a low moment And I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Of course, somebody will be like, man, she's a witch Mm. because she's saying this, but it's, we all have hard days. I mean, Mm. you know, a plumber that goes to work is going to have a day. They don't want to do crap because they're having a bad day. So everybody, everybody has a bad day. So we'll move over to the questions from Instagram. Um, So Nicola Meadows, Nick Meadows, um, how do Americans view death and the funeral industry? Are they more open to talking about death and planning for it? We do a lot of pre-planning here. I don't I don't know that it's different than anywhere else. Um, you're going to have your divide. You have people who do not want to talk about it, who are not going to, you know, entertain the conversation. You know, mom's 105, you're 80, your kids are in their 60s, and you literally haven't talked about mom dying. Like, she's been on borrowed time for 30 years now at this point, she's a hundred and some years old, but they never have the conversation. And then they come in and sit down. They're like, we don't know what we want to do. Oh my gosh. How have, how have you never had this conversation? Mm. Some people just want to avoid it, but then some people are in their forties and they have everything planned out and they've had these big conversations. So 
I think it's just like everywhere you have both sides of the coin or you have the middle ground where maybe they've made comments or, you know, Hey Andy, when I die, I want to blah, 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 that we, you know, we're at the pub one night and that's what I throw out there because whatever conversation. And you're like, when I do die, you're like, Oh my God, she told me once. this, And (laughs) yeah. So I think you've got a lot of that middle ground too, where things are said or basic conversations, but I don't think it's, I do, I can't imagine it's much different than some places. Mm. Yeah, it is fascinating the influence of the trends within funeral services. They come from the states and they come over here to the UK. Uh, before I left to go to Canada, and this was two thousand and seven, so you know it's recent-ish, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, but be- before I left, the funeral home that I worked for, it, it was unusual for a pre-need mm. to-, to come through the door. So yeah, you didn't when... have pre-need, like a pre-need well, the, staff? It, it, or... it existed, but it certainly wasn't advertised and it okay. wasn't something that was generally pushed, even by many funeral directors. Huh. Um, but when I was in Canada, one of the bigger eye-openers for me was the fact that you didn't know whether it was a pre-need or an at-need walking through the door next they were that prevalent Mm. Um, and then when I came back to the UK 2010 um, the really I started noticing that trend coming over but kind of it didn't pick up big time in TV and radio advertising with us until I'd probably say the last five years Rach would you agree Mm. it's it's been a, a relatively new surge or trend um, in, I, in the industry here? I would say 20 years ago, when I first started kind of really in the business as a director, we had more in the smaller town, kind of mid-sized town that I was in. We would have multiple times a week, people come in, just walk in and say, hey, could we talk to somebody about making arrangements? I do not see that happening now because mm. it's we're into a different generation. Back then, that was more of what you did. Hey, let's go to the funeral home and talk to them today. We don't need people without appointments, just literally stopping in. Where now, even at large funeral homes, you call. You call and make appointments. You call ahead. There isn't that stop-in thing mm where it used to be so casual to do that. And I think that is a big change I've seen with that part of it. It's maybe not less people doing it, but it's just being done in different ways, maybe. Um, And there's all different degrees of prearranging. I say it, like I'll say, some people just want to put their discharge from the military. They want to just put that paperwork on file, or they just want to write down their name and social security number and get some brief things on file somewhere. And some want to make their full funeral arrangements pay for Mm -hmm. them. So it's all these varying degrees within that as to what they want to accomplish. That also though creates a lot of confusion where we have people that are like, mom and dad have it all handled. They said everything was done. Mm -hmm. All dad did was put his discharge paper on file. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of varying degrees there. And then sometimes families get upset with you because they think that you are, have taken all this money that mom and dad gave you when they didn't do anything with you. Mm -hmm. And so it it can be challenging on that side of it also, because the people who did the pre-planning don't convey the right information to the family Mm -hmm. about the pre-planning. And I've had a couple of those just in the last week. And it makes you feel like, 
they're trying to call you out on something that you've done illicit and then there's just nothing there. It's just misinformation within their communication. I suppose it's hard because then this feeds back into the narrative and this misconception that's, you know, that that we're shady folk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've, yeah. we've said a few times through this conversation that um, the, the, the term direct cremation has cropped up. Um, mm. And Rach, Rach, you'll probably back me up that that has been a relatively new concept in the UK. Yeah. To the point yeah. that at the moment we're probably... I'd say it's a peak in it, aren't we? Mm, so yeah. again, the last five years, within the last five years, that's only been something that's become prevalent. Definitely. And I, I would say from from my personal experience with where I am, um, we really only saw it real, properly pick up um, when COVID was happening and there were so many restrictions on who could attend the funerals or whatever. So it was kind of a, well, if we can't have it that way, well, we'll just have them cremated and it can just be a direct and that's and then we saw it rise at that point and it's not really like it has dropped off a little bit but yeah that was more certainly quite a turning point for for what I've noticed personally so interesting yeah Mm. and so we've got one more question um just bear with me um so this is also from instagram so you'll have to forgive me because it's uh, an instagram handle uh, which is squeet nut <laughs> um so what is the like what's the opinion of us embalmers on the uk embalming trade um and what would you want to ask uh to uk embalmers i don't know if there's any generalized opinion Honestly, Mm. I think that if you asked a lot of people, they wouldn't have a clue that it's not kind of regulated as it is here, that it's not this licensed schooling thing, um, because the British Embalmer Institute is something that we hear about over here. So I would just assume that you had to go to the British Mm. Embalming Institute in order to be an embalmer in the British Isles, which is not the case. You can go, but you don't have to. So I think it's, if you were to go and do, like if I went to the NFDA, the National Field Directors Association Convention, and I walked around the floor and I interviewed like 30 embalmers and asked them about, what do you know about embalming in England? And they would not have a clue on a lot of it because They've never encountered it. They don't seek the information. Basically, if it doesn't encounter them, they don't care. I think is a lot of it because just even within our country, they don't look into, um, you know, what's happening in other states even. So I would think there's just, I hate to use the word, but an ignorance that they just don't Mm. know that. And I don't mean that, um, negatively it's just the lack of information Mm. there so I don't think they could even give an opinion because they probably don't know Mm. what they're opinioning on um except bad information probably (laughs) (laughs) so as we know is out there um I I think we've talked so much during this about both of your experiences that I don't know if I have any other specific questions. I think, do you work for one funeral home, both of you, or are you more trade? So my, my circumstance is a little bit different. I 
worked as a funeral director for for about 25 years um but then a few years ago 2017 i moved into education into full-time teaching within the funeral profession nice. so i i teach embalming mortuary science and i also teach funeral directors now uh, under the auspices of, of both the british institute of funeral directors and the british institute of embalmers so the embalming that we do here through the college is for the purpose of the students so we're fortunate in that we don't have to do a trade around for mm kind of personal income gain as it were uh, although obviously you know there's charges associated but we we do it for the students which is a, a luxury really nice but, uh, whereas myself I'm I'm employed um for a corporate funeral uh provider um as a full-time embalmer so a 40 hour week but just embalming that's nice how many calls do they do a year within that one company that you're embalming for um as far as the national company is concerned i'm not sure but i, I believe that ours is around 1300 a year okay um but but the embalming conversion rate um it fluctuates so anything from like 50 percent up to like 75 percent uh week on week of, of of our cases would be embalmed so i am i'm plenty plenty busy <laughs> ah, that's interesting okay that is interesting. Yeah, we do. The one funeral home I work at, we do about a thousand calls a year, but it's very compartmentalized, kind of like you are where you have front of the house, back of the house, you have your mm. prep staff, um, and then you have your arrangers, and then you have all of your other, your graphics design, your accountant, your phones, your everything else um, broken down. So, and there's not, there's a little bit of crossover between working one side and working the other, you kind of jump in, but we have a trade embalmer come in to do a quite a bit at that location because it, you just have to, because it's so compartmentalized because of the volume of meeting mm -hmm. the families and facilitating, because not only are you meeting a family, so let's say we have five calls the night before, well, those five families need to be met, but we also have the funerals that are on the schedule for that day, plus all the people in the back to get ready. And so you know, you have to divide out and conquer and it is an interesting, I think the schedule is what many people would be surprised if they came into our funeral homes to really look at them because there's so many moving parts at all times with all these different areas to try and coordinate. It's like, okay, well, I might meet with a family, but I have to make sure that if somebody's getting dressed and readied that they're ready at the right time so how do you communicate that between the two and what kind of schedule is it on a computer are you using paper are you using a whiteboard are you using it's interesting i think people would be surprised by a lot of that behind the scenes mm. that really has to go on so that you don't f up for a family i mean truly mm. there's it is like you know, one little thing could just mess everything up for a family, mm. which is terrifying every day. It's like an adrenaline every day up and down and up and down a little bit when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, there's just an immense amount of pressure, isn't oh there? My God. Because of the responsibility that, that comes along with it. So. There is. Well, it's a one-time thing. Unlike a wedding where sure you can have another way and you can get married again, you know, if, that's your plot in life. 
you can do or even, even renew vows. You yes. know. We, I yeah. mean, we could have a second funeral, I guess, if you needed to, or a second memorial service, but not really how it works. Usually mm. it's a one-time mm. highly emotional event. So one little mistake can ruin the whole thing. I guess kind of mm. like, you know, a bridezilla could go, off if you know one little thing happens true but um that that emotion it's like it's like you're walking this fine line because that emotion that's building of loss can really swing into anger and displaced pain that can come at you if you Mm -hmm. give that opening when you're working with families and with you know if the body doesn't look right or though bitch weary is not exactly so or whatever it is you can really open a door that's like terrifying to go in it's it's always this and you touch on a really important point there because i i honestly believe that that focus on the care of the deceased and presenting the deceased in the best way possible for the chapel that along with the relationship the funeral directors built with the family if you get that right Mm-hmm. then you know even if some things were to not go as you would want them or intend them later on you can be forgiven so much when that part of it has been done to the satisfaction mm-hmm. of the family yet if that chapel experience has not been great then you really have to make sure that absolutely everything following that is spot right. on and perfect and I've, i really believe that it's such a pivotal moment in somebody's grief journey I think, well, when you, when you cut out a little bit earlier, um, that was one area I think I was kind of talking on when we were talking about the embalming equipment, Mm, because I think that's where it's the view of, since it's kind of a divided role, um, specifically where you guys are, where you have the funeral directors and they are often the ones running the business where they, if they don't, if they personally, and they don't see that viewing need and they don't see the importance of what the embalmer does they're not going to invest in that area of the business so you go in even here you go in funeral homes and you go in the preparation room it is often the most outdated room with the oldest equipment with the smallest space that there is because that investment is not made in that area where um, like I was saying, if, if you focus on the care of the body and you really want the best presentation, you're going to buy the embalming machine. You're not going to have your embalmer come in with a hand pump and stuff. You're going to buy the equipment. You're going to invest yeah. in it. You're going to get good fluid, get good instruments for them. So they have everything they need to excel as great as they can. But if they don't see that, and they don't see the need because they think, oh, if, as long as the family's happy because they're working with me and I'm doing a great job, it doesn't matter yeah. what the body looks like. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get those varying points where it, it they're there because of the deceased. And if the deceased looks like crap, then that overshadows so much. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I, th- I think here's quite a nice place to finish in the sense that we are finishing on the fact that the whole reason any of us do what we do is because there is a deceased person that requires care and if that person hadn't passed away and didn't need looking after 
then none of our roles would be here. So, it, you know, the, the significance of, of that person and their family should never, be never be forgotten or no. underestimated. Absolutely. But um, thank you so much for um for joining us oh thank you so much so much um i know it's taken us uh, <laughs> taking us a while hasn't it but I, I really do hope that we're able to do something like this again as well oh, because it's, I, I feel like there's there's so many things that especially our listeners um might come back from listening and think oh actually like they've mentioned this but i'd like to know a bit more about that because to go into everything that we've discussed today in absolute detail would would take hours wouldn't it so, yeah. 700 videos yeah, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uncounted, so, Gary, well, uncounted i know it's crazy isn't it oh my gosh just in case there is anyone that that listens to us or followers that hasn't come across you would you like to just shout out your handles and uh where we can find you yeah i am carrie the mortician so k-a-r-i the mortician on youtube and same thing on Instagram and on Facebook is Carrie the Mortician. You can follow me on either of those platforms and then come over and subscribe on YouTube. So yeah, closing in on a hundred thousand subscribers, which is just mind blowing. But my little girls are, we watch every day for this countdown right now too. And then I'm like, <laughs> I'm like once we hit it, what are we going to do after? We have no we have no countdown to go to anymore. <laughs> kind of fun the last month or so and watching it and stuff. So yeah, oh, thank you. No, it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, and it's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you. See you soon. Bye. That was Carrie. She's gone. <laughs> I've just oh. said she's got a passport. She's got all of her bags packed. I've seen her onto the plane just in those last few, few seconds. Back off to Michigan. Mortician from Michigan. <laughs> oh, I've just. Isn't I've she so good though? I've so enjoyed speaking with her and um, and her accent. I just love it. I love it. Um, so anyway, I thank know. you. She had a secret conversation with me. She wasn't keen on your sport, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you are so honestly so insulting um so thank you thank you for listening yes thank um, you everybody it's been great to have you all back we will be back soon i love seeing the inside of your ears <laughs> so i am rachel i'm andrew floyd and we are the eternal debate so until next time thank you mm-hmm.